Hello, and you've just joined us for the second episode of the BV podcast for January 2023 and some items of genuine Dorset rural life. Welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, I interview Rupert Hardy, chairman of the North Dorset CPRE, about the need, as he sees it, for additional rooftop solar panel capacity. Roger Guttridge tells the reputedly spooky tale of Sanford Orcus Manor. Conservation officer Stephen Oliver tells of the work which has been carried out on a tributary of the River Stour in order to replace some natural features which have previously been tidied away. Wildlife writer Jane Adams looks for signs of new life in the countryside to lift the winter gloom. George Hosford embraces new app technology, but at the same time asks whether there really is money to be made from any element of farming. And farmer Andrew Livingston perhaps seeks controversy by asking if Dorset might not need a motorway. I'm here today with Rupert Hardy, who's the chairman of the North Dorset CPRE. Hello, Rupert, and thank you for joining us on the BV podcast. Real pleasure. Now, you wrote a piece very much about the uh, case for solar panels on rooftops. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about what the CPRE is and what you do? CPRE, Campaign to Protect Rural England, although primarily we operate under CPRE um, with the campaign uh, and the rest in very small um, words at the bottom. Um, Campaign to Protect Rural England was started in the 1920s when ribbon development in England was going mad. But I mean, what we see its current role as is primarily um, protecting and enhancing the countryside as well as supporting rural communities. And you've had people like Bill Bryson, who's been our ex-president um, in the past, uh, who was very much involved uh, and was you know, quite a, uh, a prominent figure. And my role is quite broad within Dorset. I chair the North Dorset Group, but I also wear a variety of other hats, and I've been involved quite a lot with renewable energy. And what's the North Dorset group specifically get up to? CPR is not just an opposition group. It's very much there no, to, we're, we're to make that, a difference. We're there, as I said, uh, planning issues, uh, which sometimes means um, trying to stop inappropriate planning applications. But we are you know, so often sometimes supportive of, the thing of, of planning applications that look to us to be in the right place. But it's also a question of, seem to be positive uh, about and supporting rural communities. So some of the things that we've been very active on recently has been um, promoting hedgerows, rejuvenation of hedgerows, and obviously um, rooftop solar, which we see as one of the the best ways to try and sort of meet net zero. I've been involved in um, judging Best Village Shop in in Dorset over the last few years. Um, So there's a number of activities... um, and we're not just there to try and stop things. Now, your article for the BV for the BV magazine online really takes on a bit of a campaign around the ever increasing number of solar farms. And the point you're making there is that that is neither the most efficient means of generating renewable energy nor the most environmentally friendly. Could you just outline the, the case for that as you've made yes. it in the article? I mean, certainly. Um, if you look at the, the statistics, solar farm efficient inefficiency um, versus, um, um, say, wind. If you look at, say, offshore wind, 
you've got about 40% or more efficiency, whereas it's as low as 11% for um, solar greenfield. And why is it so low for solar power? Well, it's just the way you know, solar panels work. You know, if you go and put a wind turbine out in the North Sea, uh, there's an awful lot of wind there. And we are, unfortunately, not in the, in the Sahara here in terms of the uh, amount of sun that's um, hitting those um, solar arrays. Okay, so wind power then is very much more the efficient way of generating... Yes, and the government's taken that on board. You'll notice that and the government strategy is primarily to rely on offshore wind. So if that's the case, then what is the, what's the problem, if you like? Because well, the problem is that um, no, Dorset has its own renewable energy uh, targets and there are no shortage of, of, of developers who seem keen to cover our beautiful countryside with uh, solar panels because they can see that uh, if they put in an application for, say, 200 acres or so, um, that they can make money out of it. And most of these developers, frankly, are far more concerned with the profit rather than saving the planet. Within Dorset, you know, one must remember that we have um, over half the, uh, of the countryside is protected landscape. And we do have some very, very beautiful, um, lovely downlands, coastland, coast um, landscapes, etc. And this is worth protecting, not just for the residents, but also for the many visitors we have. The solar farm movement, which, as you say, is it's on the increase, certainly at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. What's the damage that you perceive from increasing numbers of solar farms? You make some points in the article. Could you just... Yeah, I mean, two or three main things. First of all, we've got... You know, the negative impact on landscape quality. And as I said, an awful lot of the solar farms seem to be very close to protected landscapes, like the areas of outstanding natural beauty. Secondly, you know, there's adverse impact on heritage assets. And we've got some wonderful heritage assets in Dorset that need protecting. Um, they won't look very good if they're bang next to a solar farm. But one of the things that's come to the foreground in the last year, year has been the uh, worry about... Um, Food security. You know, we have uh, lovely farms and uh, productive farms, and it'd be very sad at a time of food security when uh, there's a major problem of, of, of inflation due to, due to the Ukraine war. Um, that there seems the focus seems to be on giving away that food production merely for the sake of glass panels and glass. No, solar power stations. Okay, some people might say, well, yes, we hear all of that, yeah. but we are in this climate emergency, which most people would tend to yeah. accept is now the case. So what do we do if it's not solar power? You're, you're advocating wind power, but that's very expensive. It's offshore. It's, it's a lot more difficult well, to they, engineer. Well, the, the moratorium sort of um, stopping onshore... Is now over, and we shall see you know, whether applications for you know, for wind farms come back here. But primarily, our focus has been on rooftop solar. There's you know huge capacity and potential for putting rooftop panels on buildings, whether they be commercial, domestic, industrial, whatever. Um, and you know, if you look at the statistics, I mean, it's rather sad that you know, only about 18 months ago they did a survey and they found that. Um, 95% of household uh, domestic roofs had no solar panels and 98% of businesses in Dorset um, had none. And so that you can see how what a huge potential there might be. Indeed. And you, you quote in the article that the objective is to increase 
energy output from, well, getting technical here, up to 3.8 terawatt hours per year by 2050. And we're currently at 0.5 a terawatt hour per year. So there's, there's a good stretch to go. So could we effectively say that by increasing the number of rooftop solar panels, and that would be on domestic premises, presumably, as well as commercial, that could achieve that target? Not not by itself, obviously, no. But clearly, it would be extremely beneficial as there can be a greater focus um, on the rooftop solar. So far, the government uh, has, has singularly failed to provide much support here. We thought that prior to COP26... They'd bring in measures to make it mandatory for new housing estates to have solar panels on roofs, but they didn't, and they focused on heat pumps instead. And I'm afraid that Dorset Council has been very slow in reacting too, because there are other local authorities who have now brought in planning conditions um, to make developers actually bring in far more in the way of of energy saving uh, measures on the on the new homes. So, for example, you know whether it be you know improved insulation or whether it be rooftop solar those councils are now posing these conditions on developments i see looking to the future then you feel at the moment the the rush to solar farms is not the right way to go mm-hmm. you'd like solar energy but not not in large conglomerations you want to yeah. see it on rooftops so what would you like to see done to encourage that? Are we looking at grants to install? Well, I mean, one, one the of the, the, the certainly positive things you've seen in, in Dorset um, has been the emergence of some community energy groups like Purbeck Energy. And these groups are facilitating, um, say, group discounts uh, on installing rooftop solar on domestic premises. So that's been particularly active in Swanage and the surrounding area. And also there are similar, I think, organisations uh, further along the coast at Bridport. Not so much, sadly, in North Dorset, but uh, we're still waiting for some of the, perhaps the, the local town councils to um, take up the challenge. But it would be very good if we could have more support for um, uh, community energy. Now, there is a, a bill that's been slowly, slowly winding its way um, through par- in the Parliament at the moment which is called the Local Electricity Bill. And there are over 300 MPs who are supporting this. Um, It's taking a a very long time because it's clearly not on the top of the government's priority list. Um, But hopefully this will make it much more easy for community energy groups to, to, to prosper. I see. It's not so much a case of individuals going out and having to... to. We would like to see individuals. I think you know it's an educational thing too. You know, if... Uh, the government has at least you know, put out some advertising in terms of uh, promoting you know, energy-saving measures. Um, but undoubtedly, if there was a greater focus on rooftop solar, that would help. I mean, how do we make this happen? How can we help to influence things? If people are listening to this and saying, that makes a lot of sense, how can they help you, CPRE, to make it a reality? Well, I think they can go and talk to the, some of the existing community energy groups and start up one in, in North Dorset would be very helpful. But undoubtedly, you know, with the current you know, price of, of energy, um, although gas may have come down, oil is still pretty high, and that affects you know, the, perhaps the majority of people in Dorset, then undoubtedly it would be nice if, if domestic resident, residents would actually go and talk to some of the um, installers and see whether they can get you know, solar panels in, fitted on their roofs. For the majority of people who are feeling the pinch at the moment and, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's a tough climate, isn't it? Who have probably got a, an oil-fired boiler or yeah. gas-fired boiler. 
this is quite a radical departure, isn't it? You know, to, to invest well, quite yes. a lot of money in this type of technology. I don't know the precise payback period, but I know it's not not very long given the current price of oil. So I think you'll find that um, the majority of people you know, would benefit, particularly you know, if they can get the sort of group discounts that would come with as a commu- local community energy group. We are certainly uh, praising Dorset Council for some of the things they have been doing. They have been busy fitting solar on public buildings, particularly sort of schools and hospitals and things. They got, first of all, some money from the EU. And secondly, the government grant they got recently, uh, which has been spent, um, I think, in a fairly positive manner to you know, put solar panels on, on lots of public buildings. But it's, uh, but it's um, the big push now should be you know, on commercial premises um, and on, on, on domestic. Okay. And CPRE at national level presumably is campaigning with the government to increase the amount of rooftop solar, is it? Absolutely. There are a number of things that we would particularly you know, suggest that the government does. You know, we want prioritisation of rooftops, surface car parks. One of the things we haven't mentioned is what France is doing. And France has uh, made it mandatory for, for car parks to have you know, rooftop solar. Oh, did. Right. And this could make a huge contribution, both, you know, it will do in France, but also if it was brought in in, in, in England. Um, I think the, 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 the figures that we have, it suggests that, that the UK may have 14.5 gigawatts of solar capacity operational. But um, if we used the, the 20,000 hectares of car parking space in the UK, this could yield an additional 8 gigawatts. So that's really quite a substantial increase. So not just it's not just um, rooftop solar, but it's also you know, looking at car parks as well. And brownfield sites is something that we very much support. It's just sad that in North Dorset we don't have much in the way of brownfield sites, whereas in other parts of the country there are far more in the way of you know, brownfield sites. So there are three you know, policy changes we would like to see brought in. Uh, one is a national land use strategy to balance the competing demands for development, energy and infrastructure. And this would promote solar panels on all, to some degree on agricultural land, but avoiding avoiding the best and most versatile agricultural land. And that's very the important thing. Is if you are going to have a solar farm, it should be on poor quality land, not good quality land that can grow food. Um, secondly, we should like to see solar panels becoming mandatory for new buildings and that planning permission should not be granted for commercial or public car parking spaces unless they provide solar power um, energy generation. And thirdly, the government needs to give more financial support to community energy groups. Those are three measures that we'd like to see brought in. Yeah, Rupert Hardy, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Local history. In this month's Looking Back column, Roger Guttridge questions the spooky stories that have long been associated with Sanford Orcus Manor. As Dorset Manor houses go, mid-16th century Sanford Orcus Manor near Sherborne is among the most exquisite in the county. Google it, however, and it's not its fine Tudor architecture that makes the headlines, but its reputation as a haven for ghosts and poltergeists. Top hit from my search, says Roger, took me to the Haunted Britain and Ireland website, which describes Sanford Orcus as an eerie-looking building, the grey stone walls of which give the appearance of being every inch the haunted house of tradition. Indeed, the site adds, 
So many ghostly tales swirl around it that many people consider it the most haunted house in England. Intrepid ghost hunters really have their work cut out with the 14 ghosts that are said to reside there. Around 40 years ago, I was privileged to attend committee meetings of the Somerset and Dorset Family History Society at Sanford Orcus Manor, whose future owner, Sir Mervyn Medlicott, happened to be our founder and chairman. It was from him that I learned that there was a rather more down-to-earth story behind the house's reputation as the most haunted house in Britain. The tale dates back to the period from 1965 to 1978, when Mervyn's uncle, Sir Christopher Medlicott, the eighth baronet, leased the house to Colonel and Mrs Francis Claridge. From the start, the Claridges claimed to have heard the sounds of beautiful music from a spinet or harpsichord and the noise of footsteps, voices and moving furniture. They described various ghostly figures, including one lady in red and another in white, a young woman in black, a farmer in a white smock, a young man looking at a stained-glass window, a screaming sea cadet, an Elizabethan walker, and a fox terrier. As time went on, the spooky sightings became ever more bizarre. There was the story of the ghostly priest, who tried to smother guests with his cloak, Even more sinister was the tale of a lanky Georgian footman who had, allegedly, preyed on serving wenches when alive, but in death smelt of decaying flesh, and would not appear to any woman who was not a virgin. To support these stories, Colonel Claridge produced a succession of witnesses and backup stories. The man in the smock was said to be the ghost of James Davidge, a tenant farmer who allegedly hanged himself under the gatehouse arch. The young, screaming sea cadet was said to have been confined to his room for life after killing a fellow cadet while at Dartmouth Naval College. Former owner Sir Hubert Medlicott was also said to return to haunt his one-time abode. The Claridge's claims attracted national headlines, which in turn lured an ever-growing stream of paying visitors to Sanford Orcus. The tenants said they were raising money to build a cancer research laboratory – The visitors included Britain's most famous ghost hunter, Peter Underwood, founder of The Ghost Club, who led a coach party to Dorset in 1975. Colonel Claridge and his wife entertained the party with some fantastic stories, Underwood reported. The huge gargoyles on each gable laughed in the moonlight. There was the sound of rattling chains every night. There was a room in which it was impossible to take a photograph. There was a phantom that appeared regularly seven nights running each year. A room that screamed. A room where every night a man parades up and down, his footsteps heavy and clear. In his next sentence, Underwood got to the point. Unfortunately, he wrote, the ghosts multiplied to such an extent that credulity was stretched beyond breaking point. Erroneous dates and facts were paraded. Dubious photographs were exhibited. Publicity was welcomed. The Ghost Club's president was one of a growing army of sceptics, among whom were the Medlicotts themselves. In 2009, when I interviewed Sir Mervyn for my book Paranormal Dorset, writes Roger, he made it clear that he was tired of the whole business, and I promised to try and put the record straight. People keep asking me if they can hold all-night vigils here, but the whole thing was made up the ninth baronet told me. 
I think some apparitions are genuine, and I wrote in my history of the village about the figure of a woman seen at the Mitre Inn. But the stories of the manor started and finished with the Claridges, and there have been further stories made up by journalists since to keep the ball rolling. Claridge needed to get more visitors to the house, and this was a nice, cheap way of doing it. Sir Mervyn humorously added that Colonel Claridge, who died more than 30 years ago, was six feet under in the churchyard and hasn't appeared himself yet. Sir Mervyn himself sadly died in 2021, aged 74. And Roger Guttridge's book, Paranormal Dorset, includes a chapter on Sanford Orcus Manor. Wildlife. This winter, Dorset Wildlife Trust has been deliberately installing dead trees in a valley near Anstey, says Conservation Officer Stephen Oliver. Implementing nature-based solutions to reduce the flood risk from surface water and improving water quality and habitat for wildlife are the two main objectives of river restoration work. Dorset Wildlife Trust's Rivers Conservation Officer, Stephen Oliver, describes the work involved in the Devil's Brook project. This exciting partnership project involved two kilometres of river restoration work completed on Devil's Brook, a 14-kilometre-long watercourse rising in the chalk hills near Higher Anstey and flowing south to join the River Piddle near Athelhampton. Much of the river has, over time, been heavily modified, straightened and over-widened, which has significantly reduced the habitat quality and biodiversity of the river. A partnership of organisations, including Wessex Water, Wild Trout Trust, Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group South West, with the support of the Environment Agency and Natural England, has been working with local landowners and managers to look at the opportunities to undertake river restoration work. Trees, whether standing or fallen, provide vital habitat along a watercourse. Unfortunately, modern land management practices mean that fallen trees are often removed. Our Rivers and Wetlands team, with the help of local land managers, trustees and Wessex Water volunteers, have installed 33 large woody debris, LWDs, features along a 2-kilometre targeted reach to replicate fallen trees. The LWD consists of locally sourced trees of different shapes that are positioned in the river and pinned in place using chestnut stakes. Fallen trees naturally provide much-needed shelter and food for an array of wildlife, but this necessary habitat is often lacking due to our tendency to tidy up and remove these features, fearing that they're causing a problem. In fact, nine times out of ten, a fallen tree along a watercourse causes no hazards and should be left in place to encourage natural processes along our modified rivers and streams. The LWD features that have been installed will dramatically transform the current uniform habitat, same flow, same depth, in this area. They will physically change water flow and direction. This will allow gravel riffles and scour pools of varying depths to form, increasing the diversity of wildlife that can make its home in and around the river. Dorset wildlife staff and volunteers working on site were treated to excellent views of kingfishers and dragonflies, who were quick to perch and admire these newly installed habitat features. Now that the project has been completed, we will be carefully monitoring for changes to the habitat and wildlife abundance in order to see what impact the work has had. Find out more about the Dorset Wild Rivers at www.dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk slash Dorset Wild Rivers. 
Wildlife writer Jane Adams is trying hard not to be stuck in the January gloom and instead to look for the signs of new life. It's a dark, wet and windy winter day. I sit in my study, sipping a hot mug of tea, listening to the rain clattering on the window. Despite the gloomy weather, I know that just outside, in the hedgerows and woods, new life is stirring. The trouble is, it's not always easy to see. Last year, I tried to go for a half-hour walk every day. But on days like today, it usually turns into a quick stomp around the block, head down, collar up, and hands wedged deep into my coat pockets. When I stumble in through the back door and my husband asks if I've seen anything on my walk, it's really no surprise he gets a glare from under my sopping wet fringe. He's right, though. There's plenty to see if I just look up. January is a time when the stumpy tails of hazel catkins start to lengthen and flower. Each dangling male bloom has around 240 individual flowers, and if you run one through your fingers, it feels like a string of tiny beads. On breezy days, the pepper-fine pollen drifts onto neighbouring female flowers, and pollination occurs. Just look further up the same twigs of the dangling clumps of male catkins, and you'll find the delicate, vivid red female blooms, always above the male flowers to prevent self-pollination. Though slightly tricky to spot, they're well worth a look. Later in the year, these little red pollinated flowers will develop into clusters of hazelnuts. The nuts provide food for a myriad wildlife, from the aptly named hazel dormouse to birds such as woodpeckers and nuthatches, who wedge the nuts into tree crevices and use their beaks to crack the hard outer shells to reach the soft, nutritious nuts inside. For now, though, the golden catkins cascading from hedgerows onto Dorset's country lanes are a welcome sight on a cold winter's day. And if, like me, you're still stubbornly looking down, try looking under a hazel tree. According to ancient folklore, it's one of the best places to find a fairy. Farming. Blandford farmer George Hosford abandons the stats and checks his crystal ball to see if his profit calculations will be accurate this year. Last year, we used a clever app which helps us to analyse the outcome of various tramline trials we carried out on the 2022 crops. It shows a coloured pattern to represent the yield map generated by the combine while harvesting. Green is better yield than yellow, with orange and red being progressively worse. The app, called Climate Fieldview Cab, is from Bayer, one of the big agrichem companies. Love them or hate them, they have the resources to develop clever stuff like this. It's not always just more chemicals. The app allows you to select any area of the field you like, or individual passes of the combine, and then tells you the area and yield of that part of the field. So, where we have applied a treatment to a particular part of a field, we can easily and accurately measure the effect of the treatment on the yield. In one field, we were testing a product which is supposed to reduce the amount of nitrogen lost to the atmosphere by converting nitrogen oxide into plant feed. We found no significant difference in yield between tramline treatments. Elsewhere on the farm, we wanted to test our nitrogen fertiliser policy on wheat, so we chose a single tramline in each of four different fields and applied an extra 40 kilograms of nitrogen, then measured the difference using the app. We found that the extra 40 kilograms produced extra yield between 5 and 8%. If you haven't already dozed off, you may now be asking, so what? It all depends on the value of grain and the cost of the fertiliser. And you would be quite right. It also depends on when you sell the grain and when you buy the fertiliser, 
and whether you have to borrow the money to do so. A fair bit of number crunching and crystal ball gazing then needs to happen in order to decide the right approach for next season. We've already committed to buy next year's fertiliser at eye-watering prices. To leave it longer would have been reckless, as we might not have been able to secure supply at all. But we're now very dependent on the grain price holding up to make the figures work and for crop growing to remain profitable. The trouble is that over the last six weeks the price of wheat has fallen £50 per tonne. That's making a huge difference to predicted margins, and right now we're not looking so clever, the same as many other farmers. Anyway, we have the fertiliser in stock and we don't have to use it at all if calculations suggest it won't pay. We could hold some over for the following year. In any case, we've already had to pay for it a year before we will see any return from selling the grain it generates. Welcome to the roulette wheel of farming. The old joke goes, how do you make a million from farming? Start with two million. In some sectors like pigs, poultry and horticulture, that is absolutely the case right now, with energy costs, labour shortage and the intransigence of retailers leading to producers saying, stuff this for a lark, I'm not risking another production cycle when the prospects guarantee huge losses. They aren't placing orders for new egg-laying chicks, productive sows are being slaughtered and not replaced, and the horticulture and protected under-glass sector is reducing output after two years of 30% of unharvested crops due to lack of labour. The fear is that these producers won't come back, making the UK ever more dependent on imported food, the opposite of what every shopper says they want. Why does anyone need to support near-identical overseas products when we produce them here? Our production costs are higher even than Europe because of tighter welfare and other regulations, and we're now having to pay more for labour, thanks to having become an unfriendly destination for foreign workers. So can anyone explain why we need to import Dutch, German or Danish pork loins? They're all the same price on the shelf. There only seems to be one likely outcome. Answers on a postcard, please. We do still keep a few sheep, despite the fact that in farming terms they're unproductive. They can denude a landscape with their persistent nibbling, they attract every ailment you can imagine, they get hopelessly stuck on their backs in hot weather, and they get stuck in brambles in any weather. Their wool, once the mainstay of our nation's productive output, and despite its undeniable magical properties, is now a valueless annoyance, and their meat? Well, if you can find any among the bones and fat, then you are cleverer than I. However, they do make excellent pets. You can leave them outdoors all year round, They can survive on very little food and don't drink much water. And you can turn up in a field with a group of tiny schoolchildren and the sheep will gallop towards you in search of tidbits. Once the toast has been distributed, most of the sheep wander off. But the best ones remain to entertain children in the gentlest fashion. The children are mostly fearless and the sheep reward their bravery with great patience. Could there actually be an economic case for ploughing a motorway through Dorset? Asks Andrew Livingston. Here's a horrific notion to get you started for 2023. Should Dorset have a motorway? Now, just hear me out before you smash your phones, tablets and laptops in utter disgust. Growing up in one of the five counties without any stretch of motorway has always been a source of pride for me. But I have been starting to brood on it. And I won't lie, I am starting to see a few benefits. What if, let's say, the M3 continued all the way to somewhere like Dorchester? This all started when I saw a few statistics as I rummaged through some government reports. Around 75% of Dorset is used for agriculture, around the national average. 
However, food production in the county employs fewer than 6,000 people. In 2021, that was less than 10% of the total employed in that sector in the southwest. It made me think, we've got some amazing food here in Dorset. Could we be doing better at exporting it? Think about our neighbours in Devon, Cornwall and Somerset. Their counties are renowned for some amazing agricultural and food products that are sold all over the country. The cheeses, creams, beers and cider that are grown and made there. There are so many amazing foods made in this county, but you don't really see them further afield. Granted, Clipper Tea is founded globally, but the tea isn't grown in Dorset. Ford Farms Coastal Cheddar, Moore's Biscuits, Capriolis Charcuterie and BV Dairies Creams are a few local products that I can think of that you can find in stores nationally. But of course no one actually knows when they're buying BV Dairy products that they're from Dorset. Admittedly, Cornwall doesn't have a motorway either and still manages to ship its food and beverages nationally just fine. But they do have the A30 and the A38, which both lead straight onto the M5. And I don't mean to break the hearts of big fans of the A35 and the A37, but frankly, they're awful, especially in the summer. The Romans invaded Maiden Castle and Dorset in 43 AD and occupied the county for more than 300 years. When they left and headed back to Italy, all we had to do was tarmac their roads occasionally and uh, maybe replace the signposts once a century, and we would have been fine. I will admit, before I get chased out of the county by the readership-wielding flaming pitchforks, that the A38 from Bridport to Dorchester is stunning on a clear day, but you don't overtake anyone on the one stretch of dual carriageway in case a wandering car drifts lanes as the driver looks across Egerton Hill to the north and the Jurassic coastline to the south. In my head, I obviously hate the very idea of a motorway, but I also believe that the rest of the country deserves some of our amazing Dorset produce. If extending the M3 means that Londoners get the experience of the silky smooth taste of Purbeck ice cream, then so be it. I'll even accept some decent dual carriageways if it means that the North could finally know that a Dorset knob isn't just sitting between the legs of the Cern Giant. And that's all for January 2023's BV Magazine podcast. We'll be back again in a few days with more Dorset news and information for you, so join us again. In the meantime, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.